Hello and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, we give our shout outs. Laura and I discuss the process of learning new things. We interview Heather Miller, the Vice President of Business Development and Principal Historian at HRA about cultural resources, music, and the Green Bay Packers. And finally, on this day in science, Charles Darwin began drafting the origin of species. So I guess he wrote down when he started it. I don't, like he knew this would be a big deal maybe. And he was like, okay, this is for history. I'm going to write down when I start writing this book. Um, (laughs) Well, maybe he was a journaler and he was like, I have this idea. Right, right. Yeah. So today I wrote my first words. Cool. We'll go with it. Um, (laughs) Anyway, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Hit that music. All right, our shout out for today goes to Ian Smith at HRA. Congratulations for winning the National Council on Public History's Excellence in Consulting Award for his expert witness work on behalf of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes and the Cordelian Tribe. Made it. (laughs) I love those names. They're so fun. Yeah, that's that's why I write them. Be sure to share your promotions, new jobs, professional and project awards with us on EPR website so we can give you a shout out here. And don't forget the NAP conference starts next week, May 17th through 20th. And can't believe it's finally almost here. I know, right? Jeez. It's it's been a long time coming. It's going to be really fun. I'm really excited for it. Yeah, I can't wait. Don't forget to register at NAEP.org. We also want to thank our second long-term sponsor, Dawson who Nick is a little familiar with. (laughs) I might be, yeah. (laughs) Dawson is a native Hawaiian global business enterprise serving federal clients through construction, PTS, and environmental services. Operating worldwide, Dawson is headquartered in Honolulu, Hawaii, with offices across the U.S. rooted in Hawaiian values of aloha, embodying humility, respect, and compassion for all, and ohana, family. And Dawson carries forward a kuleana respect which means responsibility, to benefit the Native Hawaiian community. Dawson's Environmental Branch brings science, solutions, and sustainability to planning, compliance, munitions, and remediation. With a permanent 8A status, Dawson is the perfect solution to all your business needs. You can visit them at DawsonOhana.com. If you would like to sponsor a future episode and give me some hard words to read, head on (laughs) over to environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Ooh, all right, let's get to our segment. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about this before. I saw that you on LinkedIn, you were like, hey, my, my book is out. Um, I'm sorry, what? You have a book? <laughs> I actually have three books published. One, okay, one, right. one I have a proof in hand, but I need to read the cover. <laughs> That's wild. That's awesome. So, you, you, so you're an established author, Laura Thorne, not just like, uh, you know, I did one book one time. that's crazy like what are the books what are they about like what are you well the first one was actually an iteration of a a concept i did previously for my photography so Mm -hmm. i like to teach photography and i don't teach like how to set your camera settings although i can and that's kind of like phase two but i really feel like you know if you're 
learning guitar, the first thing that you need to do is pick up the guitar and say, I like this. And you yeah, start picking out sure. some tunes without knowing anything about how guitar works. Right, and then right. when you decide like, hey, I'm at a certain level, now it's time to actually learn technical skills. It mm-hmm. doesn't often happen the other way around where you're like, let's learn the technical. Like, <laughs> yeah, here's, yeah. The, here's the chords and, you know, this is what you yeah. do and uh, octaves and that stuff. And then you're like, oh, I love this. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's really so, fun. Yeah, yeah. Which is why everyone like myself quits piano when we're 12 because <laughs> they try to teach you the technical stuff first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Um, anyway, same concept with the camera. I want people with their smartphones, especially young people, to have their first foray into art and seeing things as a conscientious observer through photography and composition. So understanding mm. depth of field and rule of thirds and framing and all of these things that take a regular snapshot where your subject yeah. is always dead center in the middle and there's no depth <laughs> and yep. you're not paying attention to what's in the background. Like you're all those, there's like 12 dimensions that I teach. Yeah. Over, That's crazy. Over the year. And I did it as a calendar the first time and I spent mm-hmm. a lot of money and now I've still got like a hundred calendars sitting here because calendars have a very short shelf life. Yes, they do. <laughs> and Very they're really awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're really awesome. They're pretty. If you want one and want to cross the dates out, I'm happy to give you one. But oh, so the fun. next year I was like, all right, I'm going to turn this into a journal. And mm-hmm. so I have the journal, but I like you were just talking about before we started talking, recording this conversation. I am a dreamer, but I'm mm-hmm. also a doer. So yeah. I have a list of probably 50 to 100 books that I intend to do. And oh, my God. That's that. Is, what? <laughs> and they're underway. So it's just I'm just like doing one after the other. So right now, the latest wow. ones were a business consulting book coaching for artists on how to mm. make their goals into their actionable tasks. And yeah. the other one that just was released was for my career coaching. And it is in action, making your action plan for finding your job. Wow. That's, that's really impressive. And that's so funny. Like, so again, this is another parallel between you and my wife. Like she's really good at photography, right? Really good. Like to the point, like we were on a cruise once and she took a a photo because she, she really hates when she gives a camera to someone and they're like, basically showed just our eyeballs. They're like, yeah, we got a picture for you. There you go. (laughs) Makes her crazy. So she's like, I'm going to do it right. If anyone ever asked me to put the camera, I'm going to take a a good picture. Right. So she took one picture for this couple and they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And Everyone else around heard that. And I'm not joking. <laughs> Ten in a row. People just kept coming up and she kept taking their pictures and they kept <laughs> getting blown away. It was really funny. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah, I feel of, like I a lot care. of yeah. environmental professionals are photographers. You know, mm-hmm. we're out, in the, out in this beautiful, usually beautiful yeah. habitat and seeing things that other people don't get to see. It's really aspiring and fun. And yeah. I think I just turned aspiring and inspiring into one word. (laughs) (laughs) I I was just going to go with it, though, you know? I know, I know. I'm trying to learn to call myself out, actually hear myself talking and then correct myself as needed. Yeah, Yeah, right, right. (laughs) That's funny, though. Like, I think I wish I was better at it. Like, it's such a great skill. And, uh, you know, even though I think most of what Lauren does is make our cats Instagram models, but she doesn't have (laughs) Instagram. So it's like this really unfair thing that's just sitting on her phone with all these glorious pictures but i wish i was better i wish i was better at it but Hang it's on, also you can get this journal that will help yeah better. <laughs> <laughs> of course of course and um but i love the way you talk about teaching it's 100 percent true you're talking about like guitar was a great example i literally like to my right i have open uh, a list of uh, uh, tabs for a song that i'm learning 
because I like playing guitar and I decided this is one of the other things I'm going to do in the pandemic, right? Is actually get good at it instead of just being like, I can sort of mess around. Um, yeah. You know, but like the way that I learned was like, hey, okay, I'm going to do the very basic stuff first and like the easiest songs I know how to play, I'm going to play. And then I'm just going to get songs that I like, harder and harder ones. But like, uh, that's been way more helpful than, like you said, like, okay, well, this is the, uh, you know, minor seven here and you're going <laughs> to, this, this, and only this scale, these are the notes that work well. And it's cool to know that eventually, but like starting out that way makes it dreadful. Like I think it's very right. dull if you can't relate it to something directly so that's really cool yeah did you know that like that i'm sure you do that the guitar industry is like booming since the pandemic <laughs> that doesn't surprise me uh yeah you know because like i said like that's what i did i was like well i've got these yeah. guitars back here Might right well my boyfriend it. plays guitar and he has been refurbishing and reselling like all his old amps like pulling them together and fixing yeah. the parts that don't work anymore and he keeps telling me like this amp was a hundred dollars and now it's worth like a thousand and <laughs> this thing is this yeah, and yeah. it keeps showing me all this stuff and he i i won't remember them off the top of my head but he's been showing me the statistics for like guitar world and yeah the different places where you buy guitar stuff and it's just like through the roof people <laughs> yeah yeah picking that up so that's kind of cool yeah uh, it's funny like so my brother is one of those people that like can literally just look at an instrument and he knows how to play it. It's like disgusting. Like yeah, it's really, it's haunting. Like I'm not joking. The first time that he, he played drums, he literally just sat down and he, he hits the, the hi-hat. He's like, hits the snare a couple of times and then just does a drum beat. <laughs> and you know, and it's like, you know, perfect rhythm and everything. And he's like, yeah, this is pretty fun. You know, he's hitting the, <laughs> and like one of his friends is like, have you ever played? He's like, so you're a drummer? He's like, no, it's my first time. And I'm right. just, it's just, you can't compete with that, you know? So yeah. I think that stopped me for the longest time because I was, I was like, I'll never be that good, you know? But that's not the goal for me. And I think it took me a while to realize that. Like, I don't have to be as good as he is at it. I just have to enjoy it. And if I enjoy it, you should do it. Right, exactly. All right, welcome back to EPR. We're super excited to have Heather Miller here today. She's quite possibly the coolest guest we've had so far. Oh, we'll let you be the judge of that. Um, <laughs> and I'll say that we've just been joking about how she looks like an angel in her studio. Yeah. The, way the lighting is hitting her hair. So, <laughs> yeah, totally jealous. Yeah. Our super cool angel today is Heather Miller. She's a PhD and vice president of business development and principal historian with HRA. Did I get that right? Yeah. And she's our first cultural resources expert on the show. So excited to hear some good stuff from her. And I think you're also, I know last year you were the cultural resources track chair for the NAP conference. Are you that again this year? I have been for seven years, actually, nice. in a row, which is hard to believe that much time has gone by. Um, yeah. I'm handing off the baton to my colleague, though, Brian Durkin. I'll still be coming, but he'll be taking on some of the organizational things with Cheryl. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. And, and thanks for your participation with NAEP. It's been wonderful. So just to start us out, if you could tell us what drew you to Culture Resources and how your career started. Sure. I mean, I took kind of like maybe a lot of us, not a very straight path to this profession. Um, yeah. I was, uh, I've been a historian all the way through. I have a, all of my degrees are in history and I really guess I sort of saw myself as becoming a, a historian and, but there aren't many jobs for PhD historians. And even when I was finishing, it's not yet 20 years, but close 2002, 
I was on the job market and I just really wasn't feeling thrilled about the potential of maybe having to do sort of a, a, you know, adjunct professorship or sort of moving around from job to job. At the time I had two small children and my husband and I decided Mm -hmm. that we were going to go to one of five cities. And so a good friend of mine from graduate school had another good friend from graduate school who called and said, hey, we've got this job open at this place called Historical Research Associates. And I said, well, I don't know what a history, history consultant would do. <laughs> and they were like, well, why don't you you know, apply? And long story short, I got hired. I still to this day, you know, almost 16 years later, have no idea why they hired me, but they did. <laughs> and so, yeah, I came in as a historian at HRA, which has a history division that does more environmental litigation support and those kinds of things, historical research and support of writing books, doing administrative histories and things like that. And then pretty soon my boss at the time left the Seattle office and we didn't have anybody to run our architectural history program. So I was a battlefield promoted to architectural history and, you know, had to really kind of get my feet under me pretty quickly about about what that meant, about how that fit in with environmental regulation like NEPA and the National Historic Preservation Act and how those two things come together. And the rest is sort of history. I mean, I did that for the past, I I ran that program for about 10 years and love it. I mean, it's so interesting to me to sort of be on the ground involved in that process. And yeah, so now I'm both an architectural historian and a historian. Um, (laughs) It's been great, but, but not exactly a certain, not, I mean, a lot of people do go into historic preservation specifically or into a cultural resources management type program. I didn't even know what section 106 was when I finished my PhD. So I was really in the dark. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool though. I think, you know, so many young people think that there's this direct path. Here's my degree and this is what I'm going to do with it. And I think that actually the sort of lesson there is to be open to opportunities, you know, that like allow you to try out new things and really sort of explore what might be out there and how it might fit with what your skill set is. I think that we so often get stuck in this idea that we have to be a subject matter expert only, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be experts in their subject, but that provides this narrow focus when you can actually take those skills and apply them in other fields. And I think that, you know, historians and archaeologists have very specific sets of skills that they don't often know can, you know, have this kind of conversation with environmental. And a lot of times environmental people don't understand that cultural is part of the environmental field either. Absolutely. You're also a copy editor. How do you balance doing both of these things? I started copy editing in graduate school. Actually, I got really, I won't say lucky because a lot of people love to teach, but that was never my favorite thing. So I Mm was landed a position as managing editor at the Journal of Women's History in graduate school. And I did that for four years. And in that process, learned how to copy edit mm-hmm. um, and sort of deal with publishing, you know, reviewing articles and, and manuscripts and things like that. So I learned that there. And then I went on to, and while I was finishing my PhD, I was an acquisitions editor at the Ohio State University Press for another four years. And honed some of those skills there more. And then I just, people started asking me to copy edit for them. And that I've been doing for about 20 years on the side. And yeah, I think most people in my life wish that I wasn't always sitting at the computer doing this (laughs) stuff, but um, I love it. I copy editing for me is a a completely different brain function. And it's something that it's just a different thing. And it's been a good side gig for a long time as a single parent, you know, having a second income was really helpful. 
So it's my retirement plan that I'm going to like live in Spain and just copy it from abroad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds saying, awesome. Yeah. yeah, that does. It sounds great. And, yeah, uh, and it's you... nice to interact still with more of an academic kind of crowd. You know, I do yeah. journal editing still for the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion, and it's been interesting. I'm a women's historian by training, and so kind of having a still a little bit of my fingers in some academic writing has been good for me. I like it. Yeah, that's uh, neat. Women's history historian. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of wild. Like, you know, you can say you had these layers of interest, you know, and I think sometimes we kind of get lost a little bit on like, you know, this is my job and this is what I have to be doing all the time. And you should, you know, enjoy what you do. But I love that you're able to take multiple layers of what it means. You know, when you say the term cultural resources, right, it's very broad. And like you mentioned, it ties into environmental policy, but some people don't really know that. So I don't know, maybe let us know a little bit about, like, talk a little bit more about that and like how, how cultural resources, how broad it is and how it ties into environmental policy too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, MEPA practitioners understand that cultural resources is one of the subsets of, of the environment that we need to look at. You know, everything we see around us has been modified by humans and, you know, humans have a history and whether you're an archeologist and you look at, you know, things that weren't necessarily transmitted through the written word or you're a historian looking at that, you know, the history of the environment is one of constant changes, most of which are made by humans, at least in the environments in which we live. And so, I mean, I hate to say that we're the redheaded stepchild of the environmental uh, <laughs> a firm, uh, or world, but I did find, I was really surprised. I think I kind of had this idea when I first started doing this, that this was something that everybody knew. And the more I began to interact with, especially large scale projects, big transportation projects or large kinds of things that required a NEPA study or something like that, that wasn't just straight section 106. Mm -hmm. It became pretty clear to me. In fact, the reason I got to NAEP is I was asked to be on a panel about one of these projects. And I realized at that conference that nobody was really talking much about cultural resources at that point. Not that it was completely out, but, you know, just wasn't as prevalent. And that's why I wanted to become the track chair because I felt like it was really important for the environmental people like the bugs and bunnies and water and air people to sort of understand that the cultural part is part and parcel of what we do. And so, so yeah, that really, I think struck me and I wanted people to understand also, even if you take just a purely cynical approach that a lot of the hangups in these processes come by ignoring (laughs) something like the tribal nexus the fact that, you know, you might not understand that what you're looking at today was a burial site or, or this, like maybe even a contaminated, you know, industrial site, things change over time. And and without somebody to tell you what was there originally, you know, was there from our perspective, history and archeology span and ethnography, you really don't get the full story. So I think, you know, that's why I always find it's really important. And and once people kind of get that and they're like, oh, right, environment, people hear environment and they think, you know, bugs and bunnies. (laughs) They don't always (laughs) water and water and soil and air. And that's true. But trying to broaden that understanding and put make cultural resources just as important in the process at the mm-hmm. outset, because yeah. actually the better you front load it and get that conversation going, yeah. which is the spirit of NEPA and section 106 is right to have a conversation an informed conversation about the environment. 
and potential effects or impacts on that a project might have. You know, I think it actually helps to both inform the project as it comes along and, you know, prevent possible problems down the road. Awesome. It's such important work. But you have like so, so much knowledge. I love history, but my memory is awful. So I never (laughs) could really do anything with it because I can't remember the people's names, the dates. I just know that stuff happened and I think it's cool. So I I can't either. I would like to point that out. (laughs) And I actually think that a lot of times people, um, and not to interrupt you, but, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been on an airplane and somebody says, oh, you know, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a historian. And they're either their eyes roll back in their head and they're like, I, too many names and dates. Or Mm -hmm. they say, I watch the history channel too, (laughs) you know, which to me means I love war (laughs) or like right. I love, you know, sort of like tanks and, and, yeah. and that's fine too. No, no offense to the history channel watchers. Cause I watch it too. But, um, but yeah. for me, I, you know, I think what I then try to explain to people is actually history is a toolkit. History is a mm. process. It's just like a scientific method. And so historic what historians bring and also archaeologists is this ability to sort of, you don't need to know all the dates and names. You need to how, know how to find that information yeah. and how to right, analyze right. it within the context of its time, write that in an easily readable manner and properly document it. And so from my perspective, history is more of a process than a knowledge base. Darn it. I could have been historian. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> You still got to pass those tests in school, though, you know. Yeah. Um, but speaking of which, so, you know, you mentioned that your background was in history and then you got into cultural resources. And and I'm sure you, did, you didn't know all this 106 stuff and you meet people who don't. You know, oh. if I am a younger person and I'm interested in maybe I do love history and the environment. Like, what advice would you have that for them, you know, getting started to help launch their careers? Yeah, good question. And I get asked it a lot. You know, I I think so. The first thing I said before about being open to new opportunities and to always, you know, just say yes to things. Don't say, oh, I don't know that. You know, say, oh, well, you know, it's about curiosity. But if somebody wanted to get into, say, the cultural resources management field specifically or historic preservation, would be to really get to know the regulations. So read as boring as these things are, but read the NEPA regulations, read the section 106 and National Historic Preservation Act and really get to understand, you know, what goes into that, because what it comes down to at all times is getting back to that process and following that process. So, you know, like I said, I didn't even know what section 106 was, and yet that drives the vast majority of the business that we do in cultural resources and and environmental NEPA, of course, drives most of that. And so, really understanding it and looking for opportunities to work on projects where that comes into play. So I think that that's the first place to start. The second place to, you know, would be to talk to people, to practitioners and really get a sense of, you know, what do they do on a daily basis? Like, I can't tell you how many people say, well, what does a regular day look like for you? You know, and I get a sense of it, you know, do you really want to do this? You know, especially yeah. on the archaeology side, it's hard because a lot of people who become archaeologists want to be Indiana Jones or they want to <laughs> dig up, you know, yeah. um, a Roman site in Italy. And and lots yeah. of archaeologists do that. But the truth is, is that archaeologists in the cultural resources fields are mostly digging negative shovel probes. And you know, I, I've heard <laughs> yeah. from some archaeologists that that gets really boring and kind of not fun anymore. Like you've lost that excitement, I guess. But it's also, you do find things 
And you're part of a process that helps protect things. And I think that that feels really important. So I would do, you know, that's the kind of thing I would look at is, is the rules and or the regulations and then talking to people about it. And also recognizing that, you know, you're not going to get rich being a cultural resources manager <laughs> and be okay with that, but also yeah. learn how to advocate for your strengths. It's a really good point. On, on the other side of the coin, the people that do sort of litigation support for environmental history, I think it's really, really, really important to like understand manufacturing processes and how various kinds of pollutants get into the environment. So for instance, PFAS compounds have come up as a large, as a concern recently. Yeah. And you need to understand where did they come from and who used them and why and that kind of thing. So oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. 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 And you, you, know, nice. you kind of touched on something I think is really interesting. You know, as you get older and you get more experience, you become, you know, if you become a manager, you're going to be out in the field less and less. And so I don't know, maybe you can talk a little bit about how that shifts over time. And, you know, what do you do if you miss being out in the field? You know? <sighs> Well, you just described my career trajectory um, <laughs> to a certain extent. I, you know, definitely kind of succeeded myself out of doing any real work at a certain <laughs> point. Yeah. And, you know, now, especially as being like a business development manager and proposals manager, also, we write a lot of proposals. Now, of course, it's, you know, writing proposals is kind of exciting because it's like the anticipation of right, this sort right. of, like, we might win this work and how would we win this work and that kind of thing. And I, and I do enjoy that. I do miss, however, always getting to go out in the field. So, you know, when you're in a company like HRA or, or something like that, you know, I think you just have to advocate for yourself to be able to still do project work and find a good balance, you know? So I think it's just, and there are people who never want to do that. You know, we certainly have people who are technical track who would much rather just be out in the field you know, directing a field crew. And these are people with lots and lots, decades of experience, highly experienced subject matter experts and practitioners who just don't want to do management and administrative stuff. And I think that that's fine too. And I think like, you know, some people are really not comfortable in administrative kinds of positions and, and they, you know, they kind of find their way, their path. That's great. I think that it does become harder, especially when your bosses say, we see you in this role. And you're like, no, I don't see myself in that role. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was basically the only person that anybody thought could actually do marketing in our company. <laughs> we, we, um, which yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's good or bad. They're like, oh, you can talk to anybody. Go with yeah. right. You know, I, yeah, I don't know that yeah. that was a compliment necessarily. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, you know, especially in a smaller firm, people have to wear multiple hats and I think that you have to be comfortable with that. And some people just aren't comfortable with that and that's fine, you know, and they're really, really good at what they do. So they should be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have some good field stories? Um, maybe there's one about Kodiak Island I heard you might uh, share. Yeah. <laughs> well, my client at the time probably wouldn't love to hear this story, but we, um, we were doing a lot of work on Kodiak Island for the Coast Guard base up there. And what an opportunity. I mean, it's just a yeah. glorious place to be, especially in like August. I mean, of you don't course. necessarily want to be there in December, but right. um, we were out with our client who's an archaeologist working for the Coast Guard. And he was ex-military 
And, you know, you carry bear spray when you're on Kodiak. Like you have to, you have to. Yeah, carry yeah. it. Like, although honestly, I have never seen a bear at Kodiak. Like I've been there really? probably eight oh, times wow. Wow. and everyone I know has been like, oh, there's a bear down at like Buskin Creek, you know? And yeah, yeah. and, and I'll, like we landed once and they're like, yeah, there was a bear sighting just down the road. And we like sped down there. No bears. So yeah, I have of course. To say that I'm the only person. Are these grizzlies <laughs> or brown or black bears? They're Kodiak bears. Kodiak bears. Kodiak yeah. bears. That's yes. right. They're their own but, bear, aren't they? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I think they're like a grizzly or a brown bear. Yeah, they are. And so, so we were out pretty far out, you know, in some, whatever you want to call it, Kodiak bush. And we're standing around getting ready to do some field survey. And my colleague who was ex-Marines had this big knife with him. Mm-hmm. And I had the bear spray has a little tie on it to keep it. So it doesn't deploy, you know, accidentally. And, um, and he, he said, Oh, I'll, I'll get that for you. And he opens up his knife and I had this thought like, Oh God, I hope he doesn't cut himself. Mm-hmm. And he, um, all of a sudden you know, almost cut his thumb off in the middle oh my of, gosh. I mean, it was pretty awful. And we laugh about it now, but he ended up getting multiple stitches and they had to, you know, thank God we're with the Coast Guard, right? Got him to the the hospital, but, but that was pretty kind of scary event for sure. Not a funny field story, but, you know, (laughs) just sort of like a safety story. Um, yeah. you know, be careful yeah, with that. But some of those on the show. We have- <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you know, we don't think that stuff happens, but this is why we have yeah. a health and safety officer, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yes. These things yeah. do happen. And you know what, when you start talking to people and this is the benefit of like things like NAP, they happen more often than you think. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Sure. But then yeah. you have these glorious, you know, I feel like one of the best things about our jobs is the places we get to go and the things we get yes. to see that yes. people just don't always get to see. I've been inside and on top of so many dams. I can't even count them at this point. <laughs> um, right. Flew to Maine one summer and did basically was the photographer for three lighthouses that had like archaeological, wow. um, historic archaeology, old, you know, these were like early 1800s lighthouses that were on islands that we had to be taken out in a boat to. And kind of, they dropped us off and we're like, we'll be back at five, you know, and, um, (laughs) you know, these are things people pay money to take trips to do. And and we were doing this stuff. So I think the opportunities for people who like variety and like to travel Mm. and like to feel like they're part of something that's, you know, public facing a little bit more, the opportunities are really endless. I've loved every minute of what I do. Yeah, which is uh, and just an amazing segue into our next question about Honey Bucket. Um, oh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, if you love this, this I, I did don't know say, if you love this. I not. did tell the story. Yeah, yeah, I did say that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, in this one, we were actually driving to a dam, my colleague and I, where we were interviewing a tribe, some tribal folks about their. These dams had dammed up some anadromous, you know, rivers with anadromous fish, salmon and and fish that moved up like that. And so we were doing some oral histories for a a coffee table book about the dam project, but also the relationship of that site to the tribe. So we were driving my colleague and I, who's a good friend of mine. He's actually worked at HRA longer than I have, was on my hiring committee. And I was driving, he's riding. And all of a sudden we started to smell something funny. You know, I started to smell something funny and I'm yeah. like looking at Paul, like, Hmm, but, you know, you yeah, might want to open yeah, the window, you, like, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. looking at me like, 
I, and we were both looking at each other like, <laughs> right, right. what is this? And then all of a sudden, like simultaneously, we look up and there is a honey bucket truck in front of us, like a pumper truck. And it's clearly, you know, off-gassing, as it were. And um, we laughed so hard. I mean, it was just, it was one of those moments where, because we travel together a lot. Sometimes we'll have five or six people on a trip together to to an archive or on a field project or something. And you really get to know your colleagues really well. And we just, we still laugh about it to this day. (laughs) I mean, it's just like the honey bucket truck. It's classic HRA lore. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I I love the idea of you both going, was it exactly you? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't really want to say something, but you're like, right, right. But you have yeah. to at some point. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then when you roll down the windows and it gets worse and you're like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This has to be something else. That's so yeah. But, you know, Laura and I both love music, too. And it's actually one of the first things that you and I bonded over. It was talking about music. And you're I mean, you are a total badass. I think we can say that right away. Uh. But you play guitar in bands and it's just really cool. And so like, where does that love of music come from? Uh, well, I'll date myself here, but I started playing in heavy metal bands when I was 14 in the 80s. Awesome. <laughs> the, you know, awesome. um, yeah, I, I just grew up. My parents both loved music. My mom's a pianist. My grandfather was a violinist. He comes from a, a very musical family and my dad's family as well. And I started playing viola as a kid and mm. then moved to piano a little bit. And then I got, my mom wouldn't let me play drums in middle school. <laughs> and I was really angry because I think I had a crush on some guy in like my orchestra class that played of the course. drums. And I'm like, I want to play the drums, you know? And of course I was starting <laughs> to listen to heavy metal music at the time. And yeah. then she was like, you can't play drums." And I said, well, fine, then I'm going to play guitar. So, (laughs) and I did, I watched Prince Purple Rain, which came out when I was Uh 14. Uh And I was like, (laughs) I was like, Hey, girls can play guitar because I mean, I hate to say it, but like, you know, there aren't many female guitar players. And I was just said, well, if Wendy can do it, so can I. And um, I started playing. I've been playing ever since I took a break during graduate school, but yeah. Got back to being in bands and have been playing ever since, just casually. I mean, I've been in a couple of cover bands that have played out a fair amount, but and with COVID, that's all ended. Of I know, course. I know, uh, it's tough. Yeah, but it's been fun, and my partner plays guitar, and so we have a lot of them. <laughs> but we haven't played <laughs> lately. But but the goal is is to you know get the band back together. That's yeah. awesome. Nick's got guitars in his house. My boyfriend plays guitar. He still plays metal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love this. Uh, was it you said uh, violinist, pianist, heavy metal? That is a great <laughs> yeah. transition, and uh, <laughs> it's been fun. It, you know, it's I've just met such wonderful people in the music community, and you know, it's been a wonderful thing. Plus, it's a good outlet. It's completely different from writing and editing and things like that. So yeah. Oh yeah. I actually I was in orchestra and played cello. I still try to play. Nice. So yeah. you make an NAEP band. We'll there you go. Right. Yeah, I was about to say. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure we've got one somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember playing in the orchestra and I don't remember getting particularly nervous. Do you get nervous playing shows? I used to when I was younger. And I think it was also because I was always the only girl. And yeah. it was there was this 80s guy 
guitar player thing going on that was like they would all stand there and watch like are you know what arpeggios are you playing and like you know do that kind of thing and so i always felt really intimidated and judged i think as a as a woman in um and i mean it made me work harder to play harder things but i was always very nervous so when i came back to it as an older adult i just said you know F it. I know this F is it. A- yeah, right. <laughs> and um, I just decided to enjoy it. And I, I let myself off the hook. So, you know, I just play rhythm guitar. Sometimes I'll play a couple leads and I sing mostly backup and harmonies and things like that. But I just was like, you know what? I'm just doing this for fun. And I don't really care what anybody thinks anymore. And I think that that comes with age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I decided my desire to play was bigger than my fear. Same, yeah. same with public speaking. You know, I think a lot of people are really nervous about public speaking. And I just kind of decided as a younger academic that this was something I was going to have to do for a career and I needed to get over it. And I think yeah. that helped with stage fright as well. Yeah, so it's a great point. And I think, you know, the younger you are, like, you know, it's a, it's a generalization, but you, you just are so wrapped up in what other people are thinking. And That's true. And most of the time, those people are also wrapped up in what they think other people are thinking about. So they're not thinking about you at all. They're, thinking, they're worried about their own thing. And it's just, yep. it's, it's, it took me a very long time to realize that. I wish, that's the one thing I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, like, hey, just knock it off. Don't worry about it. You're thinking too hard, you know? So that's great, great advice. Nick, this is like self-help for everybody. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's so true, you know? Yeah. And I try to tell my kids that too. Just nobody cares about you as much as you think. So don't no, worry about really it. really don't, you know? yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And as long as you're being a a good person and doing things, you know, I mean, I think obviously you don't want to take that too far, but yeah. And if you love it, why would you be afraid to do it? So yeah, it's good. Good lesson. (laughs) Life lessons at EPR. That's That's right. (laughs) Um, I just love that there's so many different things that you do. And I'm actually also super pumped to talk at least a little sports on this show. I don't know. Laura is a sports ball person, which means, you know, she doesn't watch sports. And so I don't want to speak for her, but it, you know, it's very, I, I'm a big, I don't her, but I'm going to, but I'm going to, <laughs> um, but I'm going to tell her how she feels about things. No. Um, <laughs> but so it's funny. We just haven't talked sports on the show much, but you're researching a book on the Green Bay Packers. And before, before you get going, like they have haunted me two times, right? In my, Uh-oh. my sports life. Once is for not beating Tom Brady like a month ago. So I'm a little upset Thank you. about that. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> but they also did beat the Steelers in the Super Bowl. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a little sad about that. So I just want you to know that's where I'm coming from here. But what kind Steelers of... Steelers fan, huh? Yeah. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's born into it. Uh, that's so okay. We'll forgive yeah. you. <laughs> I love that. She's like, it's okay. It's not. But... Um, <laughs> but like, uh, so how did you get into writing a book about the team? Like, what's the backstory there? Well, and I should say that our trivia team name is Tom Brady's Balls. So <laughs> that's, um, that'll tell you how I feel about your first, your first yeah. uh, thing. Yeah. But um, well, so actually, when I said my grandfather was a violinist, his family came over from Bohemia to Green Bay in mm-hmm. the 1870s. And they started, well, the, the grandfather, the great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather to me was, did horse tack and that kind of thing. And his four sons became really interested in both music and photography. And so they asked their dad, can we start a little photography studio in this store? And, and the anecdotal story is their dad said, well, you know, horses aren't going anywhere, but this photography thing will be over soon. So sure, fine. You can have a little <laughs> corner of the store. Well, we know how that went. Yeah. But 
they were got to be known as the photographers in that town. And as story goes, they were the first Kodak dealer, like Kodachrome dealer. Mm -hmm. And they then became the first photographers of the Green Bay Packers. So they knew, they also had their own baseball team called like the Stiller something or another. Their last name was Stiller. And I've always been a Packers fan, but I did not know that much about the Green Bay side of my family. We just didn't really connect with them. My grandmother was kind of hostile to them for some reason that nobody ever understood. But the older, when I lived in Ohio, I went to Canton to the football hall of fame because I've grown up. My dad played football. Like we were a big mm-hmm. football family and yeah, boys yeah. and Packers fans. Right. But like, I didn't really get why. And I went to Canton to the football hall of fame and saw that all of these photographs that they have up historical photographs have my name on it and have my wow. mom's main name on it. And so I realized, Hey, wait a second. There's a real history here. And so anyway, my boyfriend took me to a Packers game two years ago <laughs> and um, my first one ever at Lambeau. And yeah. I just got this idea, like how interesting of a story would it be to talk about this sort of, A, it's an immigrant story, sort of people mm-hmm. coming. And there's a lot of Bohemians that live up there. There's all of these towns that have these names and then getting into photography. And then they also were the first video, like not video, they took film. There's There are photographs of my great uncle Otto up on top of the original stadium, actually taking the first um, moving film of the Packers. And they were the photographers through the forties and fifties. And they also ran the civic band. So they, you know, one of them was like a band leader and they had a music store slash photography store in Green Bay for a long time. And anyway, I just think it's a fascinating story. It's also a story about how pro sports developed. Um, As you know, Nick, the Packers are, you know, a community owned. And I think that's a fascinating story, um, how that happened and how it's managed to stay that way, which I think is a really special thing. And then also how things like NFL films grew up around sports. So I'm really excited. I came back after that trip to Green Bay, all pumped to start my research. And then COVID happened. So I've been doing a lot of online research and reaching out actually to family members that I never knew. Yeah. Um, to try to tell the story, but, but yeah, that's my goal. It's my yeah. five-year plan. <laughs> that's, that's really great. great. So yeah, yeah, you gotta, you can't be any more interesting. Okay. That's it. No more hobbies. For <laughs> oh, you. That's too I, cool. Yeah. It's my too family cool. members would not agree, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. I've been haunted by Green Bay Packers in a different way, um, but we have so much in common, Heather. My mom's side of the family is from Wisconsin and the mid and like St. Louis area, huge, huge cheese heads. Yeah. And I, so I'm a Green Bay fan by relation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when my grandparents moved to Florida, they would make us go to every Green Bay Bucks game ever. And oh, so wow. I'm like in my early teens having to go to tailgate parties and polka with my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> So this could be a huge reason oh, why no. I'm not into sports ball. <laughs> I get it. I get it. That makes sense. Well, I'm excited about that. That sounds really cool. And well, let's hope I can get it done. You know, it's one of those things where you, you know, you try to prioritize your own things, but I'm always doing things for other yeah. people. But I, I really do want to take the opportunity to make this happen. I didn't publish my dissertation, which has always been a little bit of a sore spot for me. And Um, I would love to, I mean, I'm a historian. I love to write. I write all the time. It's just never my own things really, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we could talk to you forever. I know. This is great. You're super awesome. Do you have any special projects or accomplishments, things coming up you'd like to shout out before we end? 
Yeah. A number of my projects are confidential because obviously they're like in litigation and things like that. But right now, really cool work that I'm working on, two projects. One is a history of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Um, Mm. So as I mentioned, HRA does what we would call organizational histories or administrative histories of organizations and companies. And this is one that is pretty near and dear to my heart. You know, I've had some addiction issues in my family and it just so turned out that we ended up getting this project and it's just been fascinating. A wonderful organization that has just been on the vanguard of thinking about addiction, what, well, substance use disorder as, you know, as it's known now. So that's one that's, it's fully drafted and in their hands right now review. So I'm really excited about that. And we are really honored and proud to have worked with that organization. Yeah. So that's on the history side. And then on the CRM side, we are working right now with Southern California Edison on some hydroelectric relicensing projects. So for anybody who works on hydro, you know, the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission licenses these projects, whether they're private or not. And if you have a FERC license, you have to go through a number of studies, environmental studies, water quality, fish, you know, all of those things. But This particular one that I'm working on at Bishop, California, was the first dam went in in 1890, and it's proceeded. Most of the facilities out there were built in about the 1910s, and there are five powerhouses, and it's a very long system. And so I've had the opportunity to go to Bishop and record all of the hydroelectric facilities, but there are also mining, gold mining facilities out there. There are a number of recreational cabins that are from that era, really Mm. kind of cool, just fascinating stories and really interesting nexus with the tribe, the Bishop Paiute. They had done a lot of ditches and irrigation long before sort of channeling water out and are really involved still. So it's, it's been a great project. I actually love hydroelectricity. I like to say I studied prostitutes in my for my dissertation, actually all the way through. And I like to say I went from madams to high dams. You know, it's kind of my little, little thing. But, um, you know, in the West, we have a lot of hydroelectric projects. And so as a result, we've ended up doing a lot of that. So that's been just a wonderful thing to work on. Those are my two big projects right now. Cool. Nick, any other questions before we end? I, I mean, do we have to end? Is my is that a question? <laughs> you guys ask? are too nice to me. <laughs> we do because you know Heather's got a lot of stuff to go. I know, do. I know. Yeah, for real. Yeah, writing books, <laughs> <laughs> saving the world one day at a time. And uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, thank you so much for being on. It was really fun interviewing you. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. I was, um, I should say, terrified, but you, you guys were very nice to me. So thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, and I can't wait. To I heard the cat. Thanks for the opportunity. And um NAEP is a wonderful organization. I've just met so many wonderful people and had learned so much from you guys. So keep yeah, it up. Same. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our show. I think I'm gonna go maybe try to peck at my cello a little bit or <laughs> you know, just I don't know. Do something to feel a little cooler than I did. Yeah, right. Yeah, for real. She was great. <laughs> so much stuff, too. That was incredible. Just I know. I can't wait to have her on again or just see her in person to talk about some more yeah. stuff. This is really fun, just learning about people. and like, Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I know. It's, <laughs> it's like so awesome. the coolest part. It's the coolest <laughs> part of the, the podcast is just getting to know people and what their hobbies are and what, they, what they're involved with. Right. And so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us before you leave today. And we'll catch you on the next one. Awesome. See you, everybody.
Bye.